0: Chapter 21. People Often Highly Esteem What God Abhors Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16.15 Christ had just told the parable of the unjust steward, in which He presented the case of someone who unjustly used the property of others entrusted to Him for the purpose of placing them under obligation to provide for Him after expulsion from His position. Our Lord represents this conduct of the steward as being wise in the sense of foresight and providing for Himself, a wisdom of the world void of all morality. He uses the case to illustrate and recommend the use of wealth in such a way as to make friends for ourselves who at our death will welcome us into everlasting habitations. Luke 16.9. Then, going deeper, even to the foundational principle that should control us in all our use of wealth, he teaches that no one can serve both God and riches. Rich and covetous people who were serving wealth did not need to think that they could also serve God at the same time. The service of the one is not to be reconciled with the service of the other. The covetous Pharisees heard all these things, and they mocked him, as if they would say, Indeed! You seem to be very sanctimonious to tell us that we do not serve God acceptably. When has there ever been a tithe of mint that we did not pay? Those Pharisees did not admit that his teaching was correct by any means. They thought that they could serve both God and riches. Let whoever would say they serve riches say that they knew they also served God, and they would have nothing but scorn for those teachings that showed the inconsistency and the absurdity of worshiping two opposing gods and serving two opposing masters. Our Lord replied to them in the words of our text, "'Ye are they who justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts.' For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. In pursuing this subject, I will show how and why it is that people highly esteem that which God abhors. 1. They have a different rule of judgment. God judges by one standard, and they judge by another. God's standard requires universal benevolence. Their standard is satisfied with an amount of selfishness that is sufficiently suited to meet the times. God requires people to devote themselves not to their own interest, but to His interest and to those of His great family. He sets up only one great purpose, the highest glory of his name and kingdom. He asks them to become divinely patriotic, devoting themselves to their creator and to the good of his creatures. The world adopts an entirely different standard, allowing people to set up their own happiness as their purpose. It is curious that some pretended philosophers have laid down the same rule that people should pursue their own happiness and only take care not to infringe on the happiness of others too much. Their doctrine allows people to pursue a selfish course, only not in a way to infringe too noticeably on the rights and interests of others. God's standard, however, is to not seek one's own wealth. 1 Corinthians 10.24 His law is clear. Thou shalt love, not thyself, but the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Mark 12.30 Love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13.10 Charity, this same love, seeketh not her own. 1 Corinthians 13.5 this is characteristic of the love the law requires. It does not seek its own. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. 1 Corinthians 10.24 Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Philippians 2.4 For all seek their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ's, Philippians 2.21. Paul regards it as an entire departure from the standard of true Christianity to seek one's own interest rather than the interest of Jesus Christ. God regards nothing as virtue except devotion to the proper purpose. The proper purpose is not one's own good, but the general good. Therefore, God's standard requires virtue, while man's standard, at best, only restrains sin. All human governments are founded on this principle, as all who study the subject know. They do not require compassion, but they only restrain selfishness. In the foundational principles of our government, it is affirmed that people have certain inalienable rights, one of which is the right for each person to pursue his own happiness. This is affirmed to be an inalienable right, and it is also assumed to be right in itself as long as it does not infringe on others' rights of happiness. But God's standard requires positive compassion, and regards nothing else as virtue except devotion to the highest good. Man's standard condemns nothing as long as man so restrains himself as not to infringe on others' rights. Moral character is the result sought. It cannot be based upon forceful action, but must always depend upon the result that the mind has in view. People always really assume and know this. They know that the moral character is really the same as the purpose to which man devotes himself. Therefore, with God's law and man's law being as they are, to obey God's is holiness, while to obey only man's law is sin. People very inconsiderately judge themselves and others, not by God's standard, but by man's. They do this to an extent truly astounding. Look into people's real opinions, and you will see this. Often, without being at all aware of it, people judge themselves by their own standard instead of God's. Here I must notice some proof of this and provide some illustrations. For example, a mere negative morality is highly esteemed by some people. If a person lives in a community and does no harm, defrauds no one, does not cheat or lie, does no obvious harm to society, and transacts his business in a way that is considered honorable and virtuous, then this person stands in high repute according to the standard of the world. But what does all this really amount to? The person is just taking care of himself, that is all. His morality is entirely of this negative form. All you can say of him is that he does no harm, Yet this morality is often spoken of in a manner that shows that the world highly esteems it. But does God highly esteem it? No, but it is an abomination in His sight. For another thing, a religion that is merely negative is often highly esteemed. People of this religion are careful not to do wrong. But what is doing wrong? Is it thought not to be wrong to neglect the souls of their neighbors? What do they consider wrong? Cheating, lying, stealing. They will admit that these and similar things are wrong, but what are they doing? Look around you even here and see what people of this type are doing. Many of them never try to save a soul. They are highly esteemed for their inoffensive lives. They do no wrong, but they do nothing to save a soul. Their religion is a mere negation. Maybe they would not take a ferry across a river on the Lord's Day. But they would never save a soul from death they would let their own employees go to hell without one earnest effort to save them. Must not such a religion be an abomination to God? It is the same of a religion that at best consists of forms and prayers and does not add to these the power of benevolent effort. Such a religion is all hollow. Is it serving God to do nothing except ask favors for oneself? Some people keep up Sabbath duties, as they are termed, and family prayer. But all their religion consists in keeping up their forms of worship. If they add nothing to these, their religion is only an abomination before God there are still other facts that show that people loosely set up a false standard that they highly esteem but that God abhors. For example, they will require true Christianity only of ministers, but not of anyone else. All people agree that ministers should be really pious. They judge them by the right standard. For example, They require ministers to be compassionate. They must enter upon their profession for the high purpose of doing good and not for the mere sake of a living, not for filthy lucre's sake, Titus 1.11, but for the sake of souls and from unselfish love. Otherwise, they will have no confidence in a minister. But turn this over and apply it to people of business. Do they judge themselves by this standard? Do they judge each other by this standard? Before they will have Christian confidence in a merchant or a mechanic, do they insist that these people will be as much above the greed for gain as a minister should be, that they should be as willing to give up their time to the sick as a minister? and that they must be as ready to do without a better salary for the sake of doing more good as they insist a minister should be? Who does not know that they do not demand of people of business any such conditions of Christian character as those that they impose on gospel ministers? Let us see. If a person of business does any service for you, He makes out his bill, and if need be, he collects it. Now suppose I would go and visit a sick man to give him spiritual counsel. Suppose I would visit him from time to time for counsel and for prayer until he died, and then I would attend his funeral. Then after this, I would make up my bill and send it in and even collect it. Would there not be some talk? People would say, what right has he to do that? He should perform that service for the love of souls without charging for it. This applies to those ministers who are not under salary to perform this service, of whom there are many. Let any one of these men go and labor ever so much among the sick or at funerals, and they must not take pay but let one of these ministers send his saw to be filed, and he must pay for it. He may send it to that very man whose sick family he has visited by day and by night, and whose dead he has buried, without charge, and for the love of souls. But no such love of souls binds the mechanic in his service. The truth is, they call that religion in a layman that they call sin in a minister. That is the fact. I do not complain that people take pay for labor, but that they do not apply the same principle to a minister. Again, the business goals and practices of people of business are almost universally an abomination in the sight of God. Almost all of these are based on the same principle as human governments are, namely that the only restraint imposed will be to prevent people from being too selfish, allowing them to be just as selfish as they can be while leaving others an equal chance to be selfish too. Shall we go into a long list of the principles of people of business regarding their purposes and methods of doing business? What would it all amount to? It would amount to them seeking their own ends, doing something not for others but for self. As long as they do it in a way regarded as honest and honorable among people, no further restriction will be imposed. Take the Bible Society for an illustration. This institution is not a risky business venture entered upon the good of those who print and publish. But the goal aimed at is to furnish Bibles as cheap to the purchaser as possible so as to put a Bible into the hands of every human being at the lowest possible price. It is easy to see that any other course and any different principle from this would be universally condemned. If Bible societies would become merely a money-making business, they would cease to be benevolent institutions at all, and to claim such a designation would bring down on them the curses of men. However, All business should be operated as benevolently as the making of Bibles. Why not? If it is not, can it be a benevolent business? And if it is not benevolent, how can it have the approval of God? What is a benevolent business? A benevolent business is one that does the utmost good that which is undertaken for the one and only purpose of doing good, and that simply intends to do the utmost good possible. In just this sense, people should be patriotic and benevolent and should have a single eye to God's glory in all they do, whether they eat or drink or whatever they may do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Yet where do you find the person who holds his fellow men to this standard in practice as a condition of their being esteemed Christians? That is, that in all their business they should be as benevolent as Bible societies are. What would we say of a Bible society that would enter upon an obvious plan to make as much money as they can from their Bibles instead of selling at the lowest living price? What would you say of such a Bible society? You would say, horrible, hypocrite. I must say the same of every Christian who does the same thing. Ungodly people do not profess any Christian benevolence, so we will not accuse them of this hypocrisy. But we will try to get this light before their mind. Now think of a minister and ask if you judge yourself in the same way that you judge him. Do you say of yourself that you should do for others for free everything and whatever you require him to do for free? Do you judge yourself by the same standard by which you judge him? Apply this to all people of business. No matter what your business is, whether high or low, small or great, filing saws, or counting out bank bills, you call the Bible Society benevolent. Do you make your business as much so and as truly so in your purposes and goals? If not, why not? What right do you have to be less benevolent than those who print, publish, and sell Bibles? Another thing that is highly esteemed among people, yet is an abomination before God, is selfish ambition. How often we see this highly esteemed. I have been amazed to see how people form judgments on this matter. A young man might be a good student in the sense of making great progress in his studies, a thing the devil could do yet for this only he is spoken of in the highest terms. Provided they do well for themselves, nothing more seems to be asked or expected in order to entitle them to high praise. It is the same with professional people. I am thinking of the case of a lawyer who was greatly esteemed and admired by his fellow men. He was often spoken of well by Christians. But what was he? He was nothing but an ambitious young lawyer, doing everything for advancement, ready at any time to travel across the whole country and promote his cause. And for what? To get some good for himself. Yet he is praised and admired by Christian families. Why? because he is doing well for himself. Think of Daniel Webster. How lauded, almost canonized. Perhaps he will be yet. Certainly the same spirit we now see would canonize him if this were a Catholic country. But what has he done? HE HAS JUST PLAYED THE PART OF AN AMBITIOUS LAWYER AND AN AMBITIOUS STATESMAN. THAT IS ALL. HE HAS SOUGHT GREAT THINGS FOR HIMSELF, AND HAVING SAID THAT, YOU HAVE SAID ALL. YET HOW PEOPLE HAVE PRAISED DANIEL WEBSTER. WHEN I CAME TO SYRACUSE, I SAW A VAST PROCESSION. WHAT? I SAID. IS THERE A FUNERAL HERE? Who is dead? Daniel Webster. I said that he had been dead a long time. Yes, but they are acting out his funeral because he was a great man. What was Daniel Webster? He was not a Christian, not a benevolent man. Everybody knows this. What have Christians to do in praising and exalting a merely selfish ambition? They might esteem it highly, yet let them know that God abhors it as utterly as they admire it. The world's entire morality, as well as that of a large portion of the church, are only a false benevolence. You see a family very much united, and you think how they love one another. So they do, but they may be very exclusive. They may exclude themselves and shut off their affection almost entirely from all other families, and they may consequently exclude themselves from doing good in the world. The same kind of immorality can be seen in towns and in nations. This makes up the entire morality of the world. Many have what they call humanity, but without any piety, and this is often highly esteemed among people. They pretend to love others, but do not honor God, nor even try to. IN THEIR LOVE OF PEOPLE, THEY FALL BELOW SOME ANIMALS. I DOUBT WHETHER MANY PEOPLE WHO ARE NOT TRULY pious WOULD DO WHAT I KNEW A DOG TO DO. HIS MASTER WANTED TO KILL HIM, AND FOR THIS PURPOSE TOOK HIM OUT INTO THE RIVER IN A BOAT AND TIED A STONE AROUND HIS NECK. IN THE STRUGGLE TO THROW THE DOG AND STONE OVERBOARD TOGETHER, THE BOAT TIPPED OVER. The man was in the river, and the dog, by extra effort, released himself from his weight and seized his master by the shirt collar and swam with him to land. Few people would have had humanity enough without piety to have done this. Indeed, people without piety are not often half as kind to each other as animals are humans are more degraded and more depraved animals will make greater sacrifices for each other than the human race does go and ask a whaler what he sees among the whales when they allow themselves to be murdered to protect a school of their young yet many mothers think they do the most honorable things simply because they take care of their children Humans, as compared with animals, should act from higher motives than they. If they do not, they act wickedly. Knowing more by having the knowledge of God and of the dying Savior as their example and rule, they have greater responsibilities than animals can have. People often make a great virtue of their opposition to slavery even though it is only done without any thought of God. Possibly there is no virtue in this, or only a tiny bit more than a mere animal might have. Whoever understands the subject of slavery and is a good person at heart will certainly be an abolitionist. However, a person may be an abolitionist without the least virtue there may not be the least regard for God in his abolitionism, nor even any honest regard to human well-being. He may stand on a principle that would make him a slaveholder himself if his circumstances favored it. Such people certainly do act on slaveholding principles they develop principles and adopt practices that show that if they had the power, they would enslave the human race. Some people not only lord it over the bodies of their fellow humans, but also over their minds and souls, their opinions and consciences, which is much worse oppression and tyranny than simply to enslave the body. There is often a bitter and angry spirit which is not by any means the spirit of Christ, for while Christ no doubt condemns the slaveholder, he does not hate him. This biting hatred of evildoers is only animosity after all, and though people may ever so highly esteem it, God abhors it. On the other hand, Many people call piety that which has no humanity in it. They treat others unfairly to get money to give to the Bible society. This is piety so called without humanity. I abhor a piety that has no humanity with it, and in it as deeply as I condemn its opposite, humanity without piety. God loves both piety and humanity. How greatly, then, he must abhor either when unnaturally separated from the other. All those so-called religious efforts that people make, having only self for their goal, are an abomination to God. There is a wealthy man who agrees to give $5,000 toward building a splendid church. He thinks this is a very benevolent offering, and it may be highly esteemed among men. But before God approves of it, he will look into the motives of the giver, and so may we if we want to. We learn that the man owns a good deal of real estate in the village that he expects will rise in value on the very day that we'll see the church building decided upon enough to put back into his pocket two or three times what he gives. Besides this, he has other motives. He thinks of the increased respectability of having a fine house and himself the best room in it. Even more, he has some interest in having good morals sustained in the village, for iniquity is troublesome to rich men and is also somewhat dangerous. Then he has an unspeakable sort of expectation that this new church and his large donation to build it will somehow improve his prospects for heaven. Inasmuch as these are rather dim at best, the improvement, though unclear, is certainly an objective. Now, if you examine these motives, you will see that from first to last they are entirely selfish. Of course, they are an abomination in God's sight. The motives for obtaining a popular minister are often of the same type. The objective is not to get a man sent from God, to labor for God and with God, and one with whom the people may labor and pray for souls and for God's kingdom. But the objective, being something other than this, is an abomination before God. The highest forms of the world's morality are only abominations in God's sight. The world has what it calls good husbands, good wives, and good children. But what kind of goodness is this? The husband loves his wife and seeks to please her. She also loves and seeks to please him. But do either of them love or seek to please God in this relationship? By no means. Nothing can be farther from their thoughts. They never go beyond the narrow circle of self. Take all these human relationships in their best earthly form, and you will find they never rise above the morality of the lower animals. They embrace and hold each other, and they seem to take some interest in the care of their children. So do your domestic fowls, not less and possibly even more. Often these fowls in your poultry yard go beyond the world's morality in these qualities that the world calls good. Should not human beings have vastly higher aspirations than these? Can God regard their highly esteemed qualities any other than an abomination if, in fact, they are even below the level of the domestic animals? An unsanctified education comes into the same category. A good education is indeed a great good. But if not sanctified, if it is not used for God, it is all the more abhorrent to God. Yes, let me tell you, if it is not refined for God, it is only the more abhorrent to Him in proportion as you get light on the subject of duty, and sin against that light even more. Those very achievements that will give you higher esteem among men will, if unsanctified, make your character more entirely abhorrent before God. You may be a polished writer and a beautiful speaker. You stand at the head of the college in these important respects. Your friends look forward with hopeful interest to the time when you will be heard on the floor of the Senate moving them to admiration by your eloquence. But sadly, you have no piety. When we ask how God looks upon such talents that are not devoted to Him, we are compelled to answer that God sees them only as an abomination. The eloquent young student is only the more abhorrent to God by reason of all his unsanctified powers. The very things that give you the more honor among people will make you only the ridicule of hell. The spirits of the lower pit will meet you as they did the fallen monarch of Babylon, tauntingly saying, What? Are you here? You who could shake kingdoms by your eloquence are brought down to the sides of the pit. You who could have been an angel of light, you are a selfish, doomed sinner. Go away and get out of our company. We have nobody here as guilty and as deeply damned as you. It is the same with all unsanctified talents— beauty, education, and accomplishments. All of these, if unsanctified and not used for God, are an abomination in His sight. All of those things that could make you more useful in the sight of God are, if misused, only greater abomination in His sight. It is the same in regard to a legal religion, a religion of law and works, with which you serve God only because you must. You go to church, yet not because of love to God or to His worship, but from regard to your reputation, to your hope, or to your conscience. Must not such a kind of Christianity be of all things most abominable to God? Remarks The world has mainly lost the true idea of Christianity. This is too obvious from all I have said to need more examples. To a large extent, the same is true of the church. Professed Christians judge themselves falsely because they judge by a false standard. One of the most common and fatal mistakes is to employ a merely negative standard. There are people complaining of a lack of conviction. Why don't they take the right standard and judge themselves by that? Suppose you had let a house burn down and made no effort to save it. What would you think of the guilt of foolishness and laziness there? Two women and five children are burned to ashes in the fire. Why did you not give the alarm when you saw the fire? Why did you not rush into the building and drag out the unconscious residents? Oh, you felt sluggish that morning, just as people talk of being sluggish in religion. Well, you hope not to be judged too harshly, since you did not set the house on fire you only let it alone. All you did was to do nothing. That is all many people plead as to their Christian duties. They do nothing to rescue sinners out of the fire, and they seem to think this is a very admirable kind of religion. Was this the religion of Jesus Christ or of Paul? Is it the religion of real compassion or of common sense? You see how many people who have a Christian hope indulge it on merely negative grounds. I often ask people how they are getting along in religion. They answer that they are getting along pretty well, and yet they are doing nothing that is really Christian they are making no effort to save souls. They are doing nothing to serve God. What are they doing? Oh, they say that they regularly pray. Suppose you would hire an employee and pay him each week, yet he does nothing at all all day but pray to you. Christianity is very straightforward and is easily understood. It is a warfare. What is a warrior's service? He devotes himself to the service of his country. If need be, he lays down his life. He is expected to do this. In the same way, a Christian is to lay down his life on God's altar to be used in life or death, as God may please in His service. The things most highly esteemed among people are often the very things God most abhors. Luke sixteen fifteen. Take, for example, the legalist's religion. The more he is bound in conscience and enslaved, by so much the more, usually, does his respect as a Christian rise. The more thoroughly he groans under his bondage to sin, the more certainly he says, Reason I hear, her counsel's way, and all her words approve. Yet still I find it hard to obey, and harder yet to love. By so much the more does the world esteem, and God abhor his religion. The good man, they say, was all his lifetime subject to bondage. He was in doubts and fears all his life. But why did he not come by faith into that liberty with which Christ makes his people free? Galatians 5.1 a morality that is based on the most cultured selfishness stands in the highest esteem among people. He is such a good man of the world, they say, almost a saint. Yet God must regard him in complete abomination. The good Christian in the world's esteem is never rude or aggressive, yet he is greatly admired. He has a selfish devotion to pleasing people, and nothing is more admired. I heard of a minister who did not have an enemy in the world. He was said to be the most like Christ among all the people they knew. I thought it strange that a man so like Christ would have no enemies, for Christ, who was more like himself than any other person can be, had a great many enemies, and very bitter enemies, too. Indeed, it is said, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Second Timothy 3.12 But when I came to learn the facts of the case, I understood the man. He never allowed himself to preach anything that could displease even Universalists. In fact, he had two Universalists in his congregations. He also had some Calvinists in his congregation, and he must by no means displease them. His preaching was indeed a model of its kind. His motto was, please the people. He did nothing but please the people. In the midst of a revival, he would leave the meetings and go to a party. Why? To please the people. This may be highly esteemed among people, but does not God abhor it? It is a light thing to be judged by man's judgment, and all the lighter since they are so inclined to judge by a false standard. What does it matter to me that people condemn me if God approves of me? The longer I live, the less I think of human opinions on the great question of right and wrong as God sees them. They will judge both themselves and others falsely. Even the church sometimes condemns and excommunicates its best people. I have known cases and could name them in which I am confident they have done this very thing. They have cut people off from their communion, and now everybody sees that the men excommunicated were the best men of the church. It is a blessed thought that the only thing we need to care for is to please God the only inquiry we need to make is, what will God think of it? We have only one mind to please, and that is the great mind of the universe. Let this be our single desire, and we will not fail to please Him. However, if we do not aim at this, then everything we can do is only an abomination in His sight.